0: And now from the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: A little more than a year ago, Mallory McMorrow was virtually unknown to 99% of America. Then this suburban mom took to the floor of the Michigan State Senate to passionately and brilliantly rebuke a right-wing colleague who had cravenly accused her in a fundraising appeal of plotting to groom children and burden them with guilt for slavery. Her speech went viral and Senator McMorrow gained a national following as one of the most intriguing young progressive leaders in the nation. I sat down with the industrial designer turned politician recently to learn about her story, Michigan's role in our national politics, and the wrenching impact of the war in the Middle East on her suburban Detroit district, which is home to many Arabs and Jews. Here's that conversation. Mallory McMorrow, it's great to see you. I've been wanting to have this conversation for like a year.
0: Me too. I'm glad we're finally doing it.
1: So a year ago, you made a speech in the uh, Michigan State Senate, a response to a colleague, uh, a Republican colleague who had trolled you online in a really vicious and unfair way that had broader implications. And you responded to it. And your response, uh, I'm sure to your shock, uh, became a viral sensation. and Because before that, let's be honest, nobody knew you from a bale of hay other than your own constituents, and uh, overnight you became something else. But I wanted to have this conversation now because of a speech that was probably less viral, but I think equally important certainly in this moment. And that was a speech you made at the close of your state senate session, I think on maybe November 14th or something, whatever the date was. But And it w- was about a resolution that was introduced by the Republicans in the state Senate calling on Congress to expel Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, uh, who represents your district. So why don't you talk a little bit about what led up to that speech, and and we'll play a little bit of it and talk about it some more. And then we'll talk about you.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, first to respond to the the first comment. 80% something like 80% of Americans have no idea who their state legislator is. So, uh I don't even think most of my constituents before this speech last year could say offhand who their state senator was. And I'm pretty sure the only person who regularly watched our Senate sessions was my grandmother who lives in <laughs> Long Island New York. So, uh-huh. uh it certainly changed the trajectory of of my life and and work, but you know, this is a moment uh you're right at the, the end of our session and we are now from October 7th to now, it's just in the grips of a horrible horrible war in the Middle East. Uh, I live in Metro Detroit which I think of any place in the country has larger populations of Arab Americans and Jewish Americans living side by side, likely than anywhere else in the country, certainly with the the concentrations of of which. And I am um, married to a Jewish man. My daughter's name is Noah. She has an Israeli name. And it's been really hard here to watch something so unspeakable be weaponized for political gain. You know, we're we're in the state Senate in Michigan. We don't have the authority or the ability to censure members of Congress. We certainly can't vote to expel members of Congress. And the Republicans put up this resolution because they knew that it would divide the Democratic caucus. And they thought that they could get us on a vote um, on whether or not we would support expelling Congresswoman Tlaib. And what's so frustrating about that is I know that none of them have been in the meetings or at community events or having the conversations like I have with my husband every night. They don't care about anti-Semitism and they don't care about Islamophobia. This was just a way to try to score some points. And at a moment when we are watching images and videos of of babies and moms just being killed every single day, it was infuriating. So I I stood up in a way to say,
1: Before you move forward, presumably the purpose was That this would be a bad vote that could be touted in the next election against members who who did not support it. Because Representative Tlaib's uh, views, she's the only Palestinian in the the United States Congress, and she's very outspoken on this. I understand her passion. Some of her views have taken me aback and offended me uh, just because um, I'm the son of a Jewish refugee. Yeah, from the kind of violence that we saw, although the kind of violence we saw uh, from Hamas was in almost in a category by itself, but the kind of violence directed at Jews that so this is very emotional for everyone, uh, and uh, one of the reasons I want to talk to you was because um, you're sort of you're right on the fault line. Uh, you, you you have constituents who feel passionately both ways. You've been the recipient of anti-Semitic uh, uh, communications be, uh, because your husband's Jewish. Um, I mean, these are really, really difficult times, and that's what you tried to address in your remarks.
0: Absolutely, and I think it was just— I tried to stand up and speak as, in such a way, and and we have constituents on both sides of this issue, constituents who love Congresswoman Tlaib, constituents who are, you know, trying to figure out who is going to primary her. And and there are members of my own family, uh, friends who, you know, may be frustrated at what the Congresswoman has said or or events within the Jewish community that she hasn't been to. But this resolution from the Republicans wasn't going to do anything to address the anger and the sadness and just the rising hate that we're seeing in our communities. If anything, it would just inflame those tensions. And that's what I was hoping to get at, which is, you know, our role in the state is hopefully to try to help our constituents who are very diverse get through this horrible moment that our our country and the rest of the world is facing right now where we don't let it boil over and hurt us at home. I mean, this is a community we're still reeling from um, the murder of Samantha Wool, who was a, a synagogue president and a friend yes. of mine. I've known her for years. My My husband's known her for 20 years. And to live In these feelings every single day and then watch one of our colleagues just try to to score some points to get us on a bad vote it's just so tasteless isn't even the bad word it's just so callous and and wrong and i wanted to speak about my own experience but but to say that this doesn't help anything let's not Mm -hmm. politicize this moment and try to score points when people are really hurting and angry and we have to figure out how to get through it
1: yeah this let well let's listen to a little bit of it
2: one of my greatest fears is that the events happening in the middle east right now divide us at home that we see hate and division and anger boil over because i've always been proud that we are an area that can lead by example for the rest of the country if not the world to show how people with very different backgrounds and religions and experiences can and do live side by side. What a shameful weaponization of a horrific war to try to score political points, to divide Democrats against Democrats. For shame. You don't care about the congresswoman's constituents in Detroit. You don't care about the congresswoman's constituents in Oakland County. You don't care. I hope we do better next year. Thank you.
1: This, of course, is what frustrates people about politics generally, the sense that Politicians would sooner weaponize issues than actually solve problems. And uh, this is what you were uh, speaking to. By the way, I don't even know what the disposition of the uh, resolution was. What happened with the resolution?
0: So it was it was put up and uh, Democrats control the legislature now. So I think the Republicans knew we weren't going to take it up. Um, it got referred to a committee where it will not be taken up and and i think that they they knew that and that was the tactic of they're going to claim that democrats don't stand with with jews and i think part of what made me so angry was being lectured from somebody on the other side of the room about my family and how i'm not standing up for my family and that's not okay
1: mallory where is this going where is this going you know a, a congresswoman uh, posted Something on social media accusing the president of being complicit in genocide and, you know, clearly directing her ire at him. And I think there's, you know, that feeling is welling up among the uh, folks on, on the left. And, but this is such a complex issue for all the reasons you said. What, how, do, how do we navigate through this? I mean, I grieve for every child. Israeli children who were uh, massacred or kidnapped, Palestinian children, innocent children who have nothing to do with, any, with Hamas or any of this caught up as collateral damage. I'm heartbroken for every mother. Uh, I, I think most people feel that way, but where's, the, where's this going?
0: I mean, right now it's not, it's not going anywhere good. And you're right, I I think that when I, so when I gave the speech before I posted it online, which I do sometimes, um, I texted a video of it to my husband just to say, I I said this today, and if you feel very strongly that I shouldn't post it, I won't. Because I also wanted to make sure it wasn't coming across that, that I was defending absolutely everything that the congresswoman has said or done, because there are things that I don't agree with. But what we're seeing right now, um, and I think social media has played a really hard role in this, is that because everybody has a platform, people feel like they have to respond and they have to say something and it has to be in real time. And I don't think there's enough pausing and asking questions and trying to connect. And, And when it comes to the fact that people feel like they need to take a side in this, um, it really takes away our ability to to your point, just grieve collectively and take a humanitarian approach about um you know there's there's no clear cut right and wrong in this situation uh so my hope is that we have to get out of you know these resolutions to take an action from a state legislature to expel a member of Congress. Is just a way to try to take a public action so that you can be on your side when we need to be reaching out to each other and having difficult conversations. Um, I was just with Congresswoman Debbie Dingell uh, this morning at an event, and she's headed to the University of Michigan this afternoon in Ann Arbor to try to just have discussions with students um, in kind of closed forums. You know, Jewish students who feel unsafe. Uh, maybe wearing a Star of David necklace on campus right now, Arab American students who uh, may not be old enough to remember 9-11, but their family members certainly do about how much Islamophobia and hate was directed at them in the wake of 9-11. And I think the more we can encourage less public action, you don't always have to tweet, you don't always have to post, yeah. you don't we have live to in post. We a performative buzzer. time. Exactly. And, and just talk to each other. And it's yeah. not going to be perfect, but we, we live in a very diverse place where we have to survive together.
1: One of the problems here is, I mean, there is there is long, hard history that d- dates back, you know, for generations here that are at play. I, I just take, i I take exception just with one thing you've said when you say there's no clear cut right or wrong here. What happened, you know, on October 7th, Was in my view clear-cut wrong. I mean, you know, brutal, savage massacres of of civilians is never justifiable. Never, ever justifiable. And I know that folks feel the same way about the collateral damage that Israel's inflicting on thousands of Palestinians to to try and neutralize uh, Hamas. But yeah. It's it's just, it's very hard stuff. We had a forum right. at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago last week that I was very proud of because it was uh, Israeli and Palestinian historians talking about the history of the conflict and where we are today. And students came. Obviously, everyone had great passion, but they listened and with interest. And I think we need more discussions like that. Great.
0: Yeah. And, and if I could just, you know, kind of clarify one thing. I think on October 7th, it felt at least to me that there was a clear cut right and wrong, that what we were watching was pure evil, it was terrorism. And the further that we got from October 7th and, and, you know, right away on probably the day after October 7th, I, I attended an event at a synagogue and just posted a picture of it with no commentary. And, the amount of blowback that i got um by saying you know in this moment we all need to stand with israel and people may be interpreting that as an unequivocal agreement with everything netanyahu is doing or everything that that we've seen since then is not right but i I agree with you i think we have to be able to say and and that was some of the frustration that i think people had with congresswoman talib was that there wasn't that unequivocal
1: she was very weak in responding, and, and right. it felt like she got dragged to respond to it. And, you know, uh, the meaning of from the river to the sea is very clear. Hamas leaders have been uh, very clear as well. They did an interview in The New York Times and said, we want a permanent state of war. Right. So, you know, all this talk about ceasefire, that's not what they're looking for.
0: No, terrorist groups don't want peace. They They want chaos.
1: I, but anyway, I appreciated very much the spirit of your comments, but I want to f- spend some time here on how it is that you ended up in this position in the first place, because I'm not sure when you were a kid in New Jersey that your first thought was, hey, I think I'm going to be a state senator someday. No, certainly not. Talk about growing up there and your experience there.
0: I was born and raised in, in rural New Jersey in Hunterdon County near the Delaware Water Gap. So. You know, I was at one point a fence judge for equestrian competitions, and my mom wanted to get goats, and we had chickens, and my brother would work on the neighbor's farm, Um, and I loved it. You know, I grew up in a house that was 200-plus years old, uh, down the street from a Daughters of the American Revolution cemetery, and it was was full of history and not— anywhere like where i am now but it was wonderful i mean my mom um got divorced when i was around 7 so at some point she was a single mom raising three kids um and trying to do her best but it was really formative for me um i always kind of knew i was going to leave i think that that's something that that's connected me is i want to see more places and more people and kind of get out of this bubble that i'm in is as wonderful as it is um, but certainly this wasn't in the plans at all
1: we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the axe files
3: this podcast is supported by sleep number quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smartbed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like
1: Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. It's interesting you talk about wanting to get out of where you were. That's part of the quandary that Michigan's dealing with right now. Uh, I think 49th in the, uh, the country in population growth. And a lot of folks in rural areas, uh, not just rural areas, but rural areas, wanting to go somewhere else. We'll talk uh, more about that in your speech that we'll hear a, a, a bit of later. The one that got you, that made you famous. Um, you talked about uh, also uh, the church and uh, your experience. You grew up in the Catholic Church, and your folks were serious catholics um but uh that your mom's divorce did not your parents divorce did not sit well uh with the church and that sent you off you both off in a different direction the family off in a different direction
0: yeah that's right you know and i i've talked to my mom a lot since the speech uh brought attention to to me and to her and our background. And um, the more I've talked to her, the more that I've learned that there were a lot of things. You know, she um, grew up in New Vernon, New Jersey. And uh, she and my dad got married at a church there that she had been a lifelong member of that she loved. She loved that it was grounded in service and volunteer work. And it was a real community. And uh, she moved to White House, New Jersey, where, where I grew up and found the local church, and it just wasn't the same. Uh, there wasn't the emphasis on volunteering and works and service. Uh, the priest who, who oversaw the church was sort of known as not giving himself in service. He wouldn't visit parishioners when they were sick. He was abusive to, to children. Um, and we, we had an experience with that directly as well. And, you know, I think just she really wanted to make it work so she taught the catholic equivalent of sunday school ccd and and signed us up for activities and i i think at some point she realized she kept trying to replicate an experience that she had growing up in, in a place that that wasn't the reality um so she she left and we stopped uh going to to mass as frequently as we would have and we found community and in other ways.
1: You volunteer. You spend your Sundays volunteering.
0: Yeah. Uh, So one of the things that my mom got in trouble for uh, was that she wouldn't always be in mass on Sundays. But starting from when I was probably eight years old, she would take me to a soup kitchen in Patterson, New Jersey. And because that soup kitchen was not in the same diocese, uh, the priest in our church tried to fine my mom. So my mom told me he tried to charge her, you know, $70 every time she missed mass because she was teaching her daughter how to give back. And I, I think that was something that was just, looking back, um, ridiculous. The The fact that my mom paid those fines, which she told me I, I did what I thought I was supposed to do, was ridiculous. Um, but that's what she looked for.
1: You And yet, and yet when time came when the time came to go to college, where did you go? Notre Dame?
0: The University of Notre Dame
1: <laughs> yeah what what led you there?
0: You know, I um, was always an artist. I loved drawing and sculpting. I was obsessed with clay animated movies and tried to replicate my own. Um, and Notre Dame, as a school, has a small, Um, art and design program. It's where my dad went, uh, which is why I never wanted to go there. So my dad used to take us to Notre Dame on vacations, and I said, I'm not coming to this place. Um, But I went on a visit on my own when I was in high school, explored the design program, and really talked to a lot of the students, and, and I think found what I had been missing for so long, which was that service aspect, that everything... The students did was grounded in giving back or connecting to the community. And, and I really found a happy marriage between a small art and design program where I could really um, sink my teeth into and a community that felt like a community. Um, and the, the irony, not irony, but the way the universe works and bringing me back to a Catholic institution was kind of beautiful.
1: You talk a lot about Ted Hesburgh, who was the legendary president of Notre Dame forever, and who was a leader in the civil rights movement at the height of the civil rights movement and brought women to Notre Dame and uh, was a, very much a progressive thinker within the church.
0: Yeah, yeah. I was talking to one of my professors who's also a priest and, and, He told me, you know, Father Ted used to look up at the Golden Dome and see a statue of Mary. And I think he remarked once saying, none of this would be possible without her. And the fact that we don't have women at the school yet is such a disservice to her. Uh, So he was instrumental in um, bringing women to campus, in stepping out into the civil rights movement. And I think a lot of people today don't recognize how risky. That was mm-hmm. when you're tasked with leading a university. You know, thinking about today and cancel culture and wokeism, um, I think he would be shunned if he were still running Notre Dame today, in, in the way that he did. Uh, but to me, he's the example of of everything that we should be. That if we find ourselves in a position to have privilege and resources that others don't. It's our responsibility to use them and to try to right the wrongs that we see.
1: Meanwhile, you studied industrial design. Yeah. So it's like you were living two lives side by side there, these thoughts, and designing a a model of the Mazda 3. Is that what it was?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, you know, and, and they are all connected. So industrial design, I had always wanted to be a car designer. I really... I counted down the days until I got my driver's license and especially growing up in a rural place, you know, a car was freedom uh, and I loved working on it. And And I was friends with a bunch of guys who were all into cars and um, I didn't always find that at Notre Dame. Notre Dame was a feeder school to General Motors, but when Studebaker was still around. So I was many decades too late for that program. Studebaker
1: was in South Bend, of in course. In South
0: Bend, yeah, in South Bend, Indiana. Yeah. But all of our programs, it wasn't just about designing cars. It was about solving problems. And I really loved that. You know, design thinking is you identify the problem, you observe people, you hold focus groups, you come up with a thousand different ideas. And then you test them and you iterate and you get feedback and you ask questions. Um, You know, in our program, we designed Refugee shelters for uh war-torn countries, and and I remember designing a pop-up school because we thought if there were kids who were going through a war or a crisis, that having a place to go where you could um start to feel normal again was important. So, yes, I am I want
1: to dust that plan off. Does that, that yeah, be it's useful? Yeah, going to be today.
0: be necessary now, but that's that's what I loved about it. It was the the intersection of art and engineering and problem solving with with people at the center of it. Um, and I found my way into car design just because it was a lot of my passion. And, and I was fascinated by the fact that cars are effectively all the same. It's four wheels. They get you from point A to point B. So why do we feel so passionately about them? And why are people fanatics about the Mustang and the Camaro and Aston Martins? And it was a puzzle that I like trying to figure out.
1: Well, it was probably not the best time in history to graduate from college with a degree in industrial design and the idea that you were going to design cars because people weren't buying them in no. 2008 <laughs> and 2009 and 10 when the economy uh, collapsed.
0: No, they certainly weren't. I, uh, I, I won a car design competition with Mazda in 2007. Yes. Uh, we built a full-scale model of my concept live on stage at the LA Auto Show. And that had been a great year for Mazda. There had been something like eight or nine concept cars. And then I got an internship, and in the middle of my internship, everything fell off a cliff. Uh, the Chrysler Pacifica Concept Studio was effectively down the street from us in urban in California. And I remember coming to work one day and just hearing all of my colleagues say they showed up and the doors were locked, and everything was in boxes. Yeah. And uh, so my internship did not turn into a job. And it was the worst time possible to try to do what I
1: was trying to do. I was privileged enough to be in the room in the White House uh, when the president was deciding uh, what to do about General Motors and and Chrysler, which were were going to go under without any assistance from uh, the federal government. And it was a it was it was a very uh, lengthy, emotional debate, uh, and he finally made the decision that he did, which I think history will look back at with great approval, because he he basically saved the American auto industry.
0: Absolutely. We're, we're very, especially from Michigan, we're very, very,
1: very grateful. But so you didn't end up designing cars. You you did a bunch of other stuff and ended up at Gawker, of all places. Which people will remember? It's now defunct. Was the home of Jezebel and all kinds of other blogs and social media stuff. So, talk about that. How you ended up there?
0: Yeah, it was. Uh, my career doesn't make a whole lot of sense on paper, but I went from Mazda to living in the back of my car because um, I decided I was going to try to. make it That doesn't it work. sound like
1: a career. There,
0: it's not a career. Uh, but I, you know, I could have moved home. But I had started, you know, trying to make a mark out there, and, and decided to stay. Uh, I was working in retail, you know, minimum wage jobs. I probably applied to two hundred to three hundred different jobs and got shut out of most of them. But eventually, found my way to Mattel um, and became a senior designer over global branding and licensing for Hot Wheels. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you did get to design cars.
0: I got very, You know, people could still afford cars when they only cost a dollar. So we were still doing pretty well. Um, But when I was there, they internally um, launched an internal uh, competition to develop uh, a concept for the Hot Wheels movie that I won. And I wrote this concept for a movie. I art directed a bunch of concept art. And I got to present it to CAA and Warner Brothers. uh, And we eventually ended up using some pieces of that concept with, you know, many other people who were brilliant creatives and building out a multi year long marketing campaign that brought Hot Wheels to life. So we built a six story tall uh, orange loop in downtown Los Angeles at the X Games, and two drivers went through it. But that was my unexpected pathway into. To Gawker because well,
1: let me just say that my six year old grandson would be very excited right now. And he doesn't listen to this podcast very <laughs> often. But. This
0: is the the entry point to your podcast for for kids is <laughs> deep Hot, Hot Wheels, Hot wheels yes. content.
1: So you end up at Gawker.
0: End up at Gawker, because they were looking for an advertising creative director and to oversee um, branded partnerships for the network. And and I unexpectedly had a pretty strong background in branded storytelling. Uh, so that's how I found my way into media.
1: And I guess you met your husband there. Is that right?
0: So sort of. He uh, he was editor-in-chief of Jalopnik for seven years, which was Gawker's car enthusiast website. So they had actually written a story about me in 2007 when I designed a concept car. Uh, we ran into each other at auto shows. It's a small industry for years. And then uh, he... He's, he's going to hate that I'm going to say this on the podcast, but he told a colleague at the time when we finally got together, I don't know whether to hire her or marry her. Um, <laughs> so he did one and then
1: many years later did did the other. And and you guys ended up moving to Michigan. None, at no point in this narrative were you saying to yourself, eh, I think I'll do this until I run for public office.
0: Right. No, Still not in the cards at all. So, talk about how that happened. So, we we moved back to Michigan between 2014 and 2015. My now husband uh, had gotten a job with GM, so he was flying back and forth. He was working in Michigan, but we were living um, between the coasts, and we loved our life here. My husband is a native Michigander. He graduated from Michigan State. He uh, worked for Jennifer Granholm, so this was his world, and I just watched. 2014, turn into 2015, turn into 2016. And after living all over the country and watching what the election of Donald Trump did to Michigan, Michigan felt like a microcosm of the rest of the country. And we're talking about the auto industry. And it felt like there were so many people who, really good, hardworking, not a bad bone in their body people, wanted to believe that we could somehow make America great again. And It tore this state up. And the day after the election in 2016, there was a video that went viral of um, middle school students chanting, Build That Wall, at a group of Latina fifth graders. And that was Royal Oak Middle School, which is my town. And it was my polling place. And it was where I had been standing in line to vote the day before. And that video broke me. It was just so hard to watch. So I Googled how to run for office. And here we are.
1: <laughs> just like that. Had you been like- involved at all in community activities or political activities in the community? Had you been knocking on doors? Had you been
0: You know, very lightly. Um again, just cuz it's it's what my my husband used to do, so we knew a lot of people. I'd done a few volunteer shifts for um the Clinton campaign in 2016 and I'd gotten to know some people in the space, but I was not you know, an organizer. I was not a a member of our County Democratic Club. I had gone to a few meetings, but I I was not very heavily involved in it.
1: And you ran against an incumbent state senator, correct? A Republican. Yes. Tell me about the experience of making this transition from the world you were in. And I assume you were freelancing design Mm -hmm. stuff. Well, so tell me about that transition. What was that like?
0: it was it was wild so i i went through a program with emerge america which recruits and trains democratic women to run for office so i spent 6 months uh with 22 women from all over the state of all different backgrounds learning how to write a campaign plan and um how to raise money and how to put a team together and i looked at who represented me at every level and this state senator who was the Republican incumbent. His dad had been in Congress for 16 years. I just felt like was so disconnected from where I knew our community was on many issues, from gun violence to LGBTQ issues to reproductive rights to um, just basic showing up to work. He had built a reputation of not hosting any coffee hours or town halls, um, and it felt like he took it for granted. So I Decided to I run. Should, I should
1: ask you, though, before sure. you go on, there probably was a time when his politics more reflected the district that you represent. I mean, this has been going on all over America, but the suburbs have changed dramatically. I mean, Oakland County was a hub of Republicanism for generations.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I represented Mitt Romney's hometown. And I think what what happened is Oakland County didn't change, but the GOP changed. And this incumbent, you know, was trying to do the publicly passing himself off as as a moderate, but really tapping into Trump and Trumpism and promoting things that Donald Trump was saying, especially kind of demonizing women and immigrants and minorities. Um, And you couldn't have it both ways. So I, uh, I filed in August of 2017. I tried to do both for a while. I was trying to run and run my consultancy and do freelancing. And eventually my husband very graciously said, just run and you're going to kick yourself if you don't go all in. I've never not had my own income, so that was terrifying, but it was incredible.
1: There's always the back of the car. You could have gone back there.
0: Yeah, could have gone back there. I thought maybe I would, (laughs) Um, but it was I was terrified at first because I hadn't come from this world, but I quickly figured out my entire career set me up for this. I'm a great marketer. I'm a great storyteller. I love talking to people. I love knocking on doors. I love it. Uh, I am pretty good at raising money. Once I got over how absolutely mortifying it is to call people that you went to college with and haven't seen in 20 years, and I, I really. It shifted at some point during the campaign to where I thought less about winning and more about how much I love doing it. And I think that made a lot of difference.
1: Yeah, you talk about storytelling and I mean, I'm obviously this is a great interest of mine. And it really is an essential part of of being effective as a public official, being able to bring to life the stories of people you represent, bring to life the stories of people who are dealing with problems that need an answer. Bringing to life the story of where you want, of where you want to go, and what you're trying to create—such an important thing. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files.
0: The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions,
3: disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education.
0: Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish,
2: on your favorite podcast app.
1: And now, back to the show. We should talk about this speech that got so much attention. Why don't you set that up? As I mentioned earlier, it started. uh, The thing that caused you to give the speech was a tweet from a colleague who was basically using you as a foil to raise money.
0: Yeah, I uh, I woke up one morning and uh, it was a tweet that was a screenshot of a fundraising email, and this was a Republican colleague who, in the email, accused me by name, said Mallory McMorrow, um, is angry that she can't groom and sexualize kindergarteners uh, or make eight-year-olds believe that they were responsible for slavery. And it, it was so horrendous. And just the worst of what our politics has become. Uh, I've been a pretty popular target for the GOP since since I started running. But this was beyond the pale, you know, basically accusing me of of being a child molester so she could raise a few bucks off of my name. And throughout the day, I was getting phone calls from colleagues and people asked if I was going to sue her for um, libel and defamation. But I spoke to uh, a high school class and I remember it had a 15 year old girl raised her hand and she said, I'm queer. Why does my state hate me? And why are there all these bills targeting the LGBTQ community? And that really triggered that I knew I was going to respond and recognizing that I wasn't actually the one under the uh, under attack. But she is. And if I can stand up for her, I'm I'm going to try
1: you, by the way, just you almost precisely recited the tweet, the tweet that you were responding to was, these are the people we are up against, progressive social media trolls like Senator Ma- Mallory McMorrow. And then in parentheses, it says D Snowflake, who are out. You're not from a place called Snowflake.
0: It almost got the joke right. They, they didn't do a good job
1: who are outraged they can't groom and sexualize kindergartners or that eight-year-olds are responsible for slavery. So let's listen to part of what you said. And I really urge people, it's easy to find online. You can hear the whole speech, but let's listen to a part of it.
2: So who am I? I am a straight white Christian married suburban mom who knows that the very notion that learning about slavery or redlining or systemic racism somehow means that children are being taught to feel bad or hate themselves because they are white is absolute nonsense. No child alive today is responsible for slavery. No one in this room is responsible for slavery. But each And every single one of us bears responsibility for writing the next chapter of history. Each and every single one of us decides what happens next and how we respond to history and the world around us. We are not responsible for the past. We also cannot change the past. We can't pretend that it didn't happen or deny people their very right to exist. I am a straight, white, Christian, married, suburban mom. I want my daughter to know that she is loved, supported, and seen for whoever she becomes. I want her to be curious, empathetic, and kind. People who are different are not the reason that our roads are in bad shape after decades of disinvestment, or that that healthcare costs are too high, or that teachers are leaving the profession. I want every child in this state to feel seen, heard and supported, not marginalized and targeted because they are not straight, white and Christian.
1: Why do you think that that speech touched such a chord with how many millions of downloads were there of that? Or
0: Oh, within 24 hours, it was 12 million. <laughs> I mean, it was yeah. I, I don't even know what it's up to since and the number of times it's been on TikTok. It was completely unexpected. And. I think that there's a number of things. You know, I was writing what I was going to say the night before. And at the time, our ex speaker of the House, Lee Chaffield, a Republican, was recently revealed to be under investigation for grooming and raping his sister in law, starting when she was 15 years old. So the original version of what I planned to say talked about that. And it talked about the hypocrisy of the Republican Party and why are you coming after me when this is happening? And I also had recently gotten a phone call from a mom in my district in one of the more Republican areas who told me that she had joined a parents group because she was frustrated with her school board and the administration and COVID-19 closures and she wanted a voice, but that this parents group was starting to go down the Moms for Liberty path of targeting critical race theory and LGBTQ issues. And she said to me, and I'll never forget it. She said, I am not this person, but I also don't feel like I have a voice or anywhere to go. So with her in mind and in all of these conversations, I crossed out everything because I recognized that if I stand up and say Republicans this and Democrats this, mm-hmm. then nobody's going to listen. So I think that this struck a chord because it wasn't about party and it was really taking back my own identity. You know, Moms for Liberty claims to speak in a unified voice for parents. And I said, no, this is who I
1: am. You were depicted in a very specific way. Yeah, by the senator who posted that social media and you very clearly were saying, okay, that's the cartoon character they want to paint on me. Right. Here's the reality of who I am and I'm a lot like you. Yeah,
0: and and that we can choose differently. And also to point out that all of this culture war nonsense is just a distraction. You know, I, I added in that people who are different are not the reason why the roads aren't fixed and why healthcare right. costs are too high, because I think sometimes Democrats and, and people who care, we get caught in the trap of trying to convince people to care about something other than themselves. And what I tried to say is it's nonsense. It's not helping you, you know, whether or not you know any kids who are trans, which most people don't, your life is not getting any better. This is just garbage. And we can choose differently.
1: You guys had quite a year in Michigan in 2022. Talk about that because you have the first Democratic legislature, fully Democratic legislature in 40 years. You have three, you, you hold all the major constitutional offices, and the governor, the attorney general, the secretary of state, all women. And uh, Governor Whitmer won the state by more than 10 points a state that Donald Trump had had, had uh, carried in 2016 and was pretty close in 2020 talk about how that happened and where we are now because there were specific circumstances there you had a an abortion initiative on the ballot to in, in, enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution that obviously motivated voters to come out but how, what should we learn from Michigan and how much of it is transferable to this upcoming election and other places
0: yeah i mean michigan is it's a battleground purple state you know i mean this is not a strong democratic stronghold it's not a strong republican stronghold it swings back and forth and there was a lot that set up potential success for democrats we had an independent redistricting commission that was created that ungerrymandered the state finally So this is our first cycle with fair maps uh, in the legislature. That was also done
1: by initiative. By initiative,
0: by ballot initiative, yeah, Mm -hmm. in 2018. And we had Prop 3, which was our abortion rights ballot initiative. And then we also had so many phenomenal women running for or being in office. You know, Gretchen Whitmer is wildly popular, I think, because she comes across as a real person. She can talk policy as much as she can talk. Football and and cheap beer. And I think that that's really appealing to people who maybe liked that Donald Trump didn't sound like a politician. And then we had a Republican party who I think, like Republicans across the country, continue to go further and further down kind of the MAGA rabbit hole. So we had a really strong contrast. Um, But we had to work for it and worked hard. I raised, you know, $2.5 million for. Legislative candidates and knocked doors all over the state and supported candidates, and, and we had to have hard conversations about abortion in places where you know people are not necessarily ardently pro-choice, but the the ingredients were there. And I think that's the the lesson that I would take away for other places. It is replicable. Talk like a normal person. Show up. Work your butt off, and you show that you're delivering for people, and more than anything else michiganders are normal people they didn't want to relitigate the 2020 election they didn't want to live in this QAnon conspiracy and they just wanted to move on
1: i said i wanted to ask about whitmer and i will in one second but when you were talking about talking to people about abortion did growing up as you did was that helpful growing up oh yeah or-
0: yeah because you know i i still remember coming home from one of my ccd classes and i i must have been you know 10 or less, and saying, Mom, Mom, did you know that they kill babies with coat hangers? Like, you know, this is what we were taught. And that, I think that has allowed a lot of people to connect with me in a way to say, I may have a religious background that doesn't necessarily agree with this, or maybe a lot of the things that I was taught are not exactly correct. But once Roe fell, we were able to have real conversations about how hard it is to get pregnant and stay pregnant, how many ways it can and does go wrong. And I think people really understood once we got out of the rhetoric about, you know, baby killing versus abortion on demand, this is about people who want to start families and how do we make sure that they're safe
1: no matter what happens. Gretchen Whitmer, you, as you, you, she is, as you describe her, I've done a couple of podcasts with her and um gotten to know her a little uh and the thing that i would say about her is uh she is tough um she is quick uh she's fluent in in the in the, the issues she's working on but she is very much uh like someone you might know in that she is uh she's not a coastal candidate she's not um you know, she, she doesn't look down on people, uh, which I think has been a problem for some Democrats, you know? Um, so the, the question is, do you see her as a national candidate? If she
0: wants to be absolutely, you know, I, I have gotten to know her really well over the last few years and I know how hard it's been with, her daughters and the threats on her life and the protests outside of her home and, and all that she's had to deal with, I think she could be president,
1: but it's up to her if she wants to do it. And what is it about Michigan that has made it sort of a leader in terms of women in office, not just the three not I mentioned, but you also have a Debbie Stabenow as your senator. You've got several women, many in Congress.
0: You know, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I, when I in 2018 particularly debbie stabenow has has paved the way for all of us and i think that i built a lot of the efforts that that i ran last year in terms of my pack and supporting other candidates built off of the work that she's done to build up the state democratic party in all 83 counties that that's because of her but there was just i mean the election of donald trump in michigan was so repulsive to so many women that it got us up off the sidelines. And we now have, as you mentioned, the three statewides are all, all women. Both of our majority caucuses in the state house and state senate are majority women caucuses. So there are just a ton of us. And the beautiful thing is because there are so many women, we can all be ourselves. And I think as, as I've looked at you know Hillary Clinton and, and all the pressures that she must have felt to be everything to every woman, um, where I can have a very different personality than Gretchen Whitmer and Dana Nessel, and, and that that's normal, and it's very freeing.
1: You said something that struck me as, I don't know how I say this, kind of, didn't ring true, let's say that. use uh, Because people have talked about you for various higher offices, That's what happens when you become a viral sensation and people, I mean, I lived uh, through that with a guy I worked for in the past where he made a speech that really captured people's fancy and attention and changed the trajectory of his life. You said one of the most flattering and disappointing reactions is people asking me when I'm running for higher office, I have value because I'm a state senator, not because I have the potential to be something else. Now that I read it, maybe I'm being a little hard on you. But isn't it important to have people who can who have your skill set run for a higher office? Isn't that a positive thing? Why? I mean, I guess it's part of the job of a politician to be to be humble and dismissive, especially when they're in the office they're in and probably going to run for it again. But do you not see yourself running for a higher office someday?
0: Someday. Oh, you know, I I, I have been... Really surprised by how much I genuinely enjoy this work and and my job and getting to know our federal officials getting to know you know people working at every level. I really love this work. Um, so I would never say never but the the kind of rationale for for that quote in particular is. And I think about this a lot with the conversation about the upcoming presidential election and, you know, pundits worrying is, is President Biden too old and, and should we run somebody else and look at these polls and Democrats in particular, but Donald Trump has quite literally just said this. I think we look for the next Barack Obama all the time. You know, who's going to be the one person who can fix all of this for us? And one person can't. So I absolutely think we, we need incredibly talented people at every level of elected office. But I think that's what I was trying to get at is we wonder why all of these state legislatures are flipping to Republican control and why there's all these abortion bans and why there are these culture war bills. When we see somebody who's got a little bit of talent that we like, we just, we want them to move up as if it's a promotion. And I I think my hope is we recognize they're just different jobs and they have the same value. I have really good working relationships with officials at every level and we need good people in every level
3: of office.
1: I was one of the pundits who's, who've raised concerns about I don't like to refer to myself as a pundit, but I'm one of the people who've raised concerns because I think the stakes are so high in 2024. And the president, I think he he celebrated his 81st birthday today. Happy birthday, Mr. President. But what's very clear is right now there is disaffection among younger people and as well as some erosion among minority groups that have been uh, supportive of the Democratic Party election after election and so on. What is the answer to that? How do you energize? You're close to the demo. You're maybe a little over the line, but you're close to the demo and you, you're you someone who's a master at social media and storytelling, as you said. What stories should be told uh, that would rally the Democratic base that he needs to reassemble to win an election?
0: Yeah. I mean, look, I'll, I'll be the first. i have I've said many times I would like to see um, younger, more diverse people in in office, and it is frustrating uh, to see that a lot of our leadership uh, on both sides of the aisle, um, is in their 80s. Now, do I think we should continue wasting time putting up other options or just accept this is, this is the race we have. But I think the way forward is for the president, and the Democratic Party, to list up all of the incredible people that we have down every ticket when we've got, you know, I think we did this well in Michigan is we did a lot of campaigning together in the last cycle at events all over the state. And I think that the contrast that the president can make, especially when Donald Trump will say that he alone can do this, to say no. This is about the team. Look at all of these people who represent you and want to represent you and all of the great things that they're doing. Um, And it's what, you know, President Obama did really well. A a lot of his speeches, it wasn't about him. It was about us and inspiring us to step up and take action. And and that is that's the way forward.
1: Yes, we can. Yes, Yes, we we can. can. That was the slogan. It wasn't about him. It was about us. Right. And uh, I, th- I still think that's the way forward in, in American politics and politics generally. It's a pleasure to chat with you. I hope it's the first of many. Uh, I sus, I suspect that there'll be more occasions for you and I to get together and chat about what you've just said and what you've just done. But really a pleasure to be with you.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Fender Annenberg. The show is also produced by Lena Berry, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Steve Lichtai and Haley Thomas. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.